All right, I am Christopher Jones. You can definitely go ahead and have a seat. I really am excited about today. It's a, it's a joy. I'm hardly ever in here. And so those times that we get a little too loud through the wall, I didn't do it. It's Isabel's fault. <laughs> um, uh, you guys have really been a major blessing for us. My wife and I once lived in the Carrollton area. We have since moved over to Lavon, and we're actually involved in the church plant there. And when Isabel, um, who is an adopted mentor of mine, uh, when we started to get to know each other almost two years ago, it was, it was one of those deals to where I said, I would love to be a part of a ministry like this because um, I hope you know how special this is. I've worked for a number of churches, but very few stay true to Scripture, practice love and inclusion, and who also have such a commitment from different generations. When I look out here, most churches are really heavy in one generation or another, but you guys have a good blend of just about everyone, and it's really rare. And when you're in Dallas which scholars will tell you is pretty much the capital of Christianity in the United States. And with anything that becomes popular, it could lose its core. And to be a part of a church in Carrollton, a very busy suburb, where people kind of move in and their business will take them elsewhere, and, but to have a solid church that's preaching scripture, that's showing people love, and that's actually identifying specific issues that it can address in order to communicate to God that we don't take your grace for granted. That's rare. It's rare. Uh, and I'm excited that you guys trust me with your kids. Um, I promise to corrupt them. <laughs> they, they will be really, really, really dangerous Christians uh, because they will know a love that has been extended to them that no matter what mistakes they have made or making or will make, God still looked at them, loves them, chose to die for them, and gave them a purpose. Because I really believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So if there's nothing else that we teach back there with the elementary kids, it is that. And so I really thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm going to try to get this done within a pretty good time. Um, I, I joke with Isabel about uh, the type of message that I'm going to bring because uh, it's a little bit shorter than what we do in Restoring Hope. So um, you might actually get out of here at 11 o'clock. Now, if that happens... Well, I might finish by 11. Let me say it that way. Now, if that happens, as soon as Lent is complete, you must get me two dozen fresh from the grease Krispy Kreme donuts because my sacrifice for Lent is giving up pastries and donuts, which, if you can tell by the belly that I've developed, uh, is something that I love. And it's, it's, it's kind of bad because I tell the kids the things that you do in Lent, the sacrifices that you make, I want you to try to keep that faithfulness going for the rest of your life. I didn't think this through because <laughs> I have every intention as soon as Resurrection Sunday is here and getting me a Krispy Kreme donut. Okay? <laughs> and so if I, if I finish by 11 o'clock, then, then I, I want my donuts uh, in about five weeks, all right? And I will share a few of them. But if you have your scripture, I want you to turn with me to James. The pastors of this church have done a phenomenal job. I really enjoyed listening to their messages. And I hope to bring up something that's applicable. James, we're going to head over to verse 14. And we will read through 26. James 14, 
through 26. And now I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And so um, I want you just to kind of catch the context. And it reads, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or a sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by the works he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his work, and faith was brought to completion by that work. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab, the prostitute, also justified by works when she welcomed the messenger and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Lord, as we prepare to go into this message, we ask for you to open us up to hear something and that it will fall on fertile soil, and may we apply it, live it, and share it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the series is Table Talk. Really interesting conversations happen at the table. Dare I say, the table has conversations that rival the barbershop and the beauty shop. I remember when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to sit at the big table whenever we had family dinners like Thanksgiving, Christmas, Mother's Day. And then whenever there was one of the three revivals during our season, I couldn't wait till I turned 13 because at 13 I was going to be allowed to sit at the big table. As a kid, I had to go and sit at the table in the corner, which is where my mom and aunts and uncles will eventually go and play cards. And so we had to eat fast enough to make sure we got enough food. And we had to eat slow enough to be in close proximity to the table so that we can hear the discussions that will go on. What were the discussions? Girl, did you hear what sister such and such was wearing today at church? I cannot believe what happened on the Cosby show. <laughs> when is Mahal going to ever go to state and win a championship game? I heard she got pregnant. And it's not by her husband. And so all these different things happened at the table. And at our table, because I was the youngest of the kids, I wasn't allowed to even hear what was going on because they were kind of lean and whisper. Because being the youngest, I had a tendency to snitch by accident. And I didn't mean to snitch, but I was so much younger than everyone. I would ask my mom, hey, mom, what does this mean? What does that mean? Who told you that? William? My eldest brother, Damon, my middle brother, okay. 
Well, don't worry about that. God will take care of all that. Next thing I know, someone's getting in trouble. Okay? All right. And so, and so it was an interesting situation because I really gravitated toward the table. So as I think about the table, I would imagine who's at the head of the table? Who's sitting around the table? What's going on? And then once I started to study the Bible at, at Baylor, I started doing some studies there, they would communicate to me that whenever you had someone at the table with you, you viewed that person as an equal. And you treated them in a very hospitable way. And so that their concerns were a part of your being. Their needs were a part of your being. And so if you knew that something needed to be acted upon, when you're at the table, it was likely to be shared. And not only that, they would have very weak wine. Our wine is strong, okay? They had that weak stuff. You know, you can drink that all day and you wouldn't even get a light buzz, all right? All right, and so, and so they would have something to where after you finish your meal, you would have wine. And, and, and no one was getting intoxicated prayerfully, but they would engage in a type of talk that would later lead to them relaxing because they were at the table at the end of the day. And so the day would close with a good meal, a good discussion, and then they would relax with their friends and loved ones, and then they would go to sleep, rising the next day expecting to do something about what happened at the table. Are you with me? The table nourished them. The table spoke to their hearts. But it wasn't the actual wood at the table. It wasn't only the food at the table. But it was the fact that someone prepared the meal. Someone made sure there was wood to cook the meal. Someone made sure that the meal was flavored well. And someone took time to invite someone there. And so all of these ingredients created something that would cause me as an adolescent and even a pre-adolescent to gravitate toward the table, not knowing that the moment that I arrived at the table, I would be expected to do something about the conversations that would happen there. And so that's what's going on with James, if you will, to tie our theme of table talk to what's happening in this passage. What's happening with James is James is saying we're all sitting at a table and should be equal. And as you begin to eat, someone is going to say this is a better meal than I've ever had. And we should be concerned about that because all their meals should be good. Someone would say, I feel like my concerns are not being heard. And that should be a concern because we should be concerned about everyone's concerns. And so what James is communicating in this passage, as he says something that is problematic, and is it just I or is James a little bit of a troublemaker? I mean, he's the type of person that if he really started preaching on Sunday morning, uh, church would have a couple of hundred, and then 150 the next Sunday, whoop, 125 the next Sunday, whoop, 100. Well, I see your Christmas mothers there at Easter, uh, but outside of that, I'm going to the other church that has a softer message. But what James is communicating is he's saying it in such a way that it kind of hits you in the kidney, and it's a cross to the temple as well as a chop to the throat. And you're like, oh, what just happened to me? Because I feel like something should happen. And so James is saying, faith without works is dead. The first thing that happens whenever I approach that passage is I think, wait a minute, the scripture just contradicts itself. James is saying faith without works is dead. But Paul said, works, don't talk to me about your works. How can we reconcile this two? I want us to imagine a club, okay? An exclusive club, which Christianity is not. We are not an exclusive club. Let's understand that, okay? Everyone is invited. 
Not all will make it. And some will be in the club that look a lot like us called goats, and they won't quite make it when we're standing before God someday, okay? All right, so it's not an exclusive club, but just imagine this for the sake of the point. Imagine that we're a country club, if you will, and someone is asking you, what do I have to do in order to be admitted to this club? Someone might say money. Someone might say you have to look a certain way. You have to have a certain house. You have to have a certain style. What Paul is concerned about is that. How do you get admitted to this country club? Paul is talking about when he says that you're not saved by works, he's saying the ticket to getting in is not what you do. James has a completely different question. James is saying now that you're in, what do you do? And so it's a difference of degrees. Paul is, you are a Gentile, and they will tell you you have to be circumcised and abide by certain religious rituals and certain dietary regulations. And once you have abided by those and you have gone through these necessities, then you are allowed to declare that you are a child of God. That's Paul's question. James is like, you're already saved. Now, how do I know that you're taking the grace of God seriously? The fact that he lived 33 and a half years, did not commit a single sin, and we can't go a single day without messing up, right? The fact that he went through agony and was beaten for you. The fact that he had people walking with him for three years, and they even denied him at the very last minute when he was going through his Facebook trial, his Twitter, uh, Twitter attack, when he was going through the type of pain that we sometimes experience the people that he needed the most forgot about him but he still chose to get out the grave and come and see them again and restore them to the faith that they had letting them know I knew you were going to mess up before I even called you but I still deem you worthy because what's inside of you is good because what's inside of you is from my father are you with me all right. And so what's going on is that he's dealing with this deal he's saying you have been saved by God you've been saved now let me see you look differently. Let me see you do something in a different fashion. Can I see evidence that you are no longer of the world? And so that's what James is bringing out. Okay, so I want to bring out a few points. And in order to do this effectively, I'm going to need to make reference to a few different scriptures, okay? Something I want to talk about. First major point I want to make is that James is talking about faith without works is taking chaos to completion. Faith without works is the equivalent of taking chaos to completion. When we think of chaos, the best example of chaos is actually Genesis chapter 1, to where there was God. When did God get here? He's always been. I believe that. I really believe it. What God approached at creation was a dark, watery, chaotic mess, okay? Now, Greeks would say that he approached creation ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. But that's not what the Hebrew Bible tells us, the Old Testament. The Old Testament says it was not out of nothing. It was out of something, and that something was a mess. Because the Hebrews would understand darkness as frightening. They would understand water as dangerous. The darkness, you have no idea what's out there. The water, it's not tamed. We can't swim forever. We're going to drown. And so when it describes that God looked on creation and it was dark and water was there and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, we see chaos, something that cannot sustain life. And so what God does over the first three days is he begins to take that mess and and he organizes it. Some things 
There's now structure to the heaven, although it's not fulfilled. There's now structure on earth, and there's now structure on the land. There's structure in all these areas. And so days one, two, and three, what occurs is he creates potential. And days four, five, and six, he takes that potential to completion. And so on day three, we have earth that is formed. On day six, it goes from just being earth that doesn't have something in vegetation that, that, that's there to actually having someone that's able to deal with it. Are you with me? Okay. And so like, let's imagine this. When we see a mess, and, and let's, let me give you an idea of a mess. This is a really, really good mess. All right. You ready for this mess? Are you ready for this mess? All right. My wife is not the cook at my house. I am. After I cook, you will have about seven pots and pans somewhere. They're bad. I don't, I don't know why I do it this way. I will have sugar season all over the place. Now, now, we will sit down at our table, set our toddler, CJ, right next to us. And Chris, Chrissy is normally sitting over there. Uh, she's three months. She's normally just lying over there somewhere, just looking cute. And so we enjoy our meal. And then Kara gets up from the meal and walks over to the kitchen. And she's just like, oh, my goodness. And she looks at me. The meal was good, but... You didn't have to eat <laughs> because I have a smart mouth. I was the youngest of three, so I couldn't beat up anybody. So I developed a smart mouth. And she said, well, you better be glad somebody will eat with you because if this is indicative of anything, nobody will take you but me. Okay? And, and so that's what my wife does. And she put a little extra attitude into it that I can't quite do. Uh, but, but she does that and she looks at that mess and she says, I have no idea what to do with this mess. And I say, well, you have to begin somewhere, take a break, begin somewhere and take a break. And so she approaches it that way and it gets done. Another example of a mess to completion is we used to get into arguments during our first six months of marriage. As Matt McKinney will tell you, the first year of marriage is the worst. It is the most stressful time in your life. Now, she was good to me. I had a good first year. She had a horrible first year because she had to deal with me. All right. and, and so we would get into an argument, but because most of my friends and, and just about everyone in my family is divorced, I'm terrified of going to sleep mad and with an unresolved issue. And so I would keep her up a good extra hour or two or three, and we'll discuss whatever the matter was at hand. And the discussion was this way. Christopher talks 95% of the time. Kara says, whatever you say, boo. Christopher talks 95% of the time trying to get her to talk again. Kara says, whatever you say, boo. The next morning, Kara would wake up and say, okay, now what you were talking about last night, I don't know what it was, but let me tell you what's really going on. And she would begin to lay it out. I would try to rush to fix everything immediately. She would try to rush to clean up everything immediately. And we would become very stressed out, consumed by it. And now we don't want to do anything. Are you following me? And so what happens when we take chaos and move that chaos from being chaos to being complete, what we have to do is we have to do what God did. God said, I'm not going to create everything in one day. I'm going to take six. And then God also says, I'm going to rest on that seventh day because I want you to understand that some of the problems when you engage in your faith without works, when you begin to say, my faith will also have works, when you approach certain things, it is going to be transformed, but it can't be transformed immediately. And so, what am I talking about? You move from chaos to potential. In order to see chaos, you have to first shine some light on it, right? When we see chaotic situations and when we see problematic situations that our faith tells us to address, we have to shine light. What does God say? Does God say that this kid should be hungry? Does God say that this marriage really should fall apart? 
Because many of the marriages fall apart, not because the people are incompatible, but because they're so tired after work, they have very little energy to deal with some of the issues that they're facing. Does God say that this person should lose what they have earned because they have lost their job? Does God say that this 18-year-old should feel pressure because of all the competition in the world to accumulate how much debt by going to college and then graduate without a job waiting on them? Now, those are big issues, right? Those are the types of issues that James is identifying. For one person in here to attempt to uh, address those issues by him or herself would consume us, blow our brains, because we can't handle it. But if we approach it with a method, understanding that my faith tells me, my second point, my faith tells me that his kingdom is both here and not here. When we think of the kingdom, we realize that the reason that James is saying you have to be different is because James understands that we co-labor with God. Now, when I was in seminary, I had two professors who could not agree. One would say, you don't help God do God's will, you just pray about it. The other person would say, I don't want my knees to be as swollen and as ashy and as thick as a camel. And so there's only so much praying I can do. And then I would begin to look in Scripture and look at books like James and look at books like Luke, and I would say, wait a minute. Now, if Jesus went around and healed somebody, and they were saying that this person is blind because he was a sinner, then when Jesus healed him, wasn't Jesus removing the barrier that forced that person to be dependent upon people for help? Helping that person become self-sufficient, as well as telling the religious people that you can no longer say that this person deserves to be in this state because he was a sinner or his mom or dad was a sinner. We know that's what was going on, right? Whenever there was suffering seen, someone would say you deserve the suffering that's going on because somebody sinned. And so when Jesus heals them, he goes and says, I'm not going to even ask you, did you sin? I'm just going to say sin no more. And people can decide if you did sin or not. But what I'm saying is, is that the, the, the boundary that forced you to be dependent, the boundary that forced you to be blind, and you can no longer be self-sufficient, what was keeping you in this state of, of being wrecked and of being confused and of being hurt and of being divided from your family, I've now removed the hurdle, so now it's up to you. And so when Jesus did something like that, that was literally faith that also had a certain amount of work because his kingdom was there. And so when he creates the body of Christ, and, and we're taught that the body of Christ's birthday is Pentecost, which I'm going to accept that that's accurate. If the body of Christ's birthday was Pentecost, then the body of Christ was conceived when Jesus went and cleaned out the temple. Because when we look at the scene at the temple, what occurs is that Jesus walks into the temple and he sees a fig tree. He looks at the fig tree and says, that fig tree looks like it can address my need. I'm hungry. And as he gets up to the fig, there's no fig. There are no figs there. There's nothing to feed him. And so he's basically saying the fig tree had promise of doing something to address what I was struggling with. But upon closer examination, I was found empty. And so he's saying the fig tree is the equivalent of the temple. And so he goes into the temple, and the temple is only about money changing and allowing for people, because you couldn't really bring a sheep all the way from your farm, so what would happen is you would take some money and buy a sheep from the temple. 
And so what occurred is as you would buy the sheep from the temple, you would go ahead and pay the person. So Jesus is saying, you're telling people only to be forgiven, but you're not actually helping people to engage in being the united people and being the holy people that they're supposed to be. So what Jesus says is the fig tree has a promise of helping, but it does not do it. The temple has a promise of helping, but it does not do it. And so what does Jesus immediately do? He goes and creates the body of Christ. And he says, Peter looks and says, hey, that fig tree that you cursed is now withered up from its root. And he said, don't be surprised about this. You can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will happen if you only believe. And then he tells them to pray. That was, if you will, the beginning of the church that James is talking about because what Jesus is saying is I want my bride, my body, to have audacious, to have the type of faith that it is able to move mountains, but we think that we can't move mountains, right? When we forgive our son or our daughter who has run away from God and spent our money, trust me, that's a mountain move. For me, a non-basketball player, a non-basketball player, now I was a track guy, but a non-basketball player to marry my wife who looked at me on my first date and said, he's not wearing Jordan shorts, so I guess I can't date him. I came with slacks. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Baylor and Princeton guy, so I'm a little on the nerdy side. So, <laughs> And so, so I walk, walk in with some slacks on, and you know I have a nice button-down shirt. And she shows up uh, in her basketball gear because we're going bowling. Now, I remember to bring athletic shoes in order to go bowling. And I did remember to let her beat me, but she had a certain perception of me. So for her, and then after that, our second date, we actually went and played basketball. And all I could make was a free throw because that's not my game. <laughs> it's not my game. And so I attempted to play, and she looked at me and said, I don't really know about you. And I said, hey, just give me a shot. Because you want to know what I can do, Will? I can pray for you anytime you need help. And so that won her heart. So for her to go away from her love playing basketball, even being semi-pro, and was almost about to go international uh, to play overseas before she blew out her knees. So for her to go from that to marrying a church boy, trust me, that is moving mountains, right? And, and let's state some of the things that are obvious. For us as the United States to begin to have the type of racial reconciliation that we're beginning to see, for us to have the type of inclusion to where women are actually no longer being denied the right to the extent that they once were, because there's still issues out there, right? There's still issues in many areas. But for us to have the progress that we're seeing, knowing that there's still progress to come, because remember, the kingdom is here, it's sprinkling, but it's not fully here yet. It's beginning to move in and we're beginning to taste some of it, but it won't be fully here until Jesus. And so what James is saying is when your faith says be equal, then go and do something about it. When your faith says allow the children to come nigh, then you create a children's church next door. When your faith says go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel, then you begin to send churches all over the place. And before you know it, a person who's on the brink of divorce, who's feeling like they have no hope, sits down and talks to Isabel, Isabel pours love on them, shares something with them, and they know that God is real. Are you with me? Did I make it up? Okay, let's jump to another scripture. Let's go to John chapter And for all you trivial, Bible trivia buffs out there, when we go to John chapter 17, we realize that we're actually in that other book that's called the Lord's Prayer, to where Jesus is literally making this prayer, the prayer that we know our Father who art in heaven, the model prayer. 
This is the prayer that Jesus actually prayed. Verse 16. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. And now hear this. I ask not only on behalf of these, meaning the disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me, they got to be one. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. So when David preaches last week and he talks about not allowing for there to be division and not allowing for there to be favoritism, it's going to that prayer that Jesus prayed so that we can be one. When James says faith without works is dead and the example that he gives is talking about poverty, he's saying some people are beginning to question if God is real and some people is questioning if the bride of Christ, the church, really is able to do something because people can't be united in addressing the things that are actually looking not like God's kingdom and God is wanting for something that looks like God's kingdom. So next question as I have seven minutes to finish. I'm going to do it, y'all. Krispy Kreme's on the way. All right, so next question, next point is this. As we attempt to allow for faith to be accompanied by work, understand that it's rooted in the kingdom of God. Now, what are you talking about? If it's rooted in the kingdom of God, then it means that the king is ultimately responsible for carrying it out. You feel me? When I do my best and I just show up and I try, dare I say that's enough? Because it really is. If I do my best and I show up and I try, that's enough. Some of us are upset. We have faith that God told us to marry this person. But do we have the work that accompanies it that says, I know if I say what I'm about to say, it's going to make it harder to stay where we are. We have faith that God told us to go to that promotion. But we have a difficult time making it to work on time. Do we have the works that accompany the faith that's telling us God is raising us up to have positions of leadership so that we can influence the people that are there? Because if the wrong person is there, then sometimes we don't understand. We might not even want some of the advancements in our job, but God needs a Christian there because two years down the road, somebody's going to be on the brink of suicide and they're going to need to come to their superior to ask for leave. And that superior who's not listening to the gospel will say, I really don't care. You either shape up or you ship out. And that person might take their life but God has a purpose for that individual and so God is looking way ahead and is seeing that you have a purpose and if I get you where you're supposed to be you might not understand the full necessity but if you're where I want you to be then I can then call on you to do what I want you to do when Christians go overseas and say you will not kill these people even if I have to stand in front of a tank that's the type of faith that I'm gonna be honest about I don't have that just yet I'm working on it y'all and I'm going to have it two minutes before Jesus gets here, okay? Right. I, I, I'm working on it, y'all. I'm going to be honest about that. Now, if I need to stand up to a politician and say, no, this is out of line. This is not God's will. Well, I'm not afraid to do that. 
But I'm a little nervous about going overseas. I had I, this vacation. <laughs> and, and that's just kind of where I am. But I'm asking for God to strengthen my faith in that regard so that I can trust him. But I have a brother who literally will go and do something like that. So I'm like, you handle this, but you can't deal with the members of a church because he doesn't have the type of patience to deal with kids the way that I do. And so when we do our best, we understand that we don't have to run away from faith. My last point before I take my seat is that when James says faith without works is dead, he's also saying run to the anxiety. He gives the example of Abraham and Rahab. He identifies Rahab as a prostitute, a completely unnecessary thing to do. Just the state that Rahab is a prostitute costs you a certain amount because paper back then was not cheap. Why put that there? It was not necessary. You could have just described what Rahab did. He's given the example of Abraham, someone who is undeniably a saint. And he's given the example of Rahab, someone who Israel will celebrate because she looked out for the spies. But the world will look out and say, so undeserving. Abraham had to run to the anxiety of sacrificing his son. I can't even imagine it. Been wanting a son. I've lost three kids to miscarriage. And so when CJ arrived here, you're talking about crying in the hospital, thanking God. When we took him home and the doctor didn't bother telling us, he would breathe so lightly that you would swear he's dead. And there was a couple of times I went over there and I couldn't see his little body moving and I done freaked out, done lifted him up, turned him over, about to do CPR, terrified because I thought I had lost another one. And so I can't imagine what type of faith and faithfulness that Abraham had to give as he ran to the anxiety of saying, God is asking for me to do it, and I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I'm afraid to do it, but I can tell this is what he wants me to do. Rahab literally risking her own well-being, but knowing that these individuals are sin of God, having to do this, not knowing what would happen to her afterward, when we run to the anxiety, we begin to do things that we might not think we could have done. People who have had their heart broken by situations and circumstances run to the anxiety saying, God is calling me to run to the anxiety. I have faith that the body of Christ is supposed to be united. So God, I guess I have to trust you. I'm anxious about it. I'm afraid of it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I guess I'm going to go there. And when we do that, what happens is an enemy that we sometimes forget about says, I can no longer create the barrier from this person and their purpose. Because the end of what's happening is that God has given us a mandate to fulfill a specific element of his kingdom. We don't know when he's coming back, but there's something that we're supposed to do. And so when I know that I dated enough and I had enough heartbreaks to realize that that little fluffy-haired woman whose hair comes down into this big curly mushroom that I just love, who can't call me by my real name because she's too busy calling me boo. If times ever get hard, I have the faith of knowing no matter how hard they get, I'm not going from you. And so, give you an example. When we're in these situations, 
We have certain prejudgments that get in the way of what God is trying to do. Just like Abraham could have had a prejudgment, God wouldn't ask me to do this. But he chose to be faithful. Sometimes our prejudgments say, it's too hard, it's something that I can't. But what if God has about 500 other people that are doing the same thing and you two will eventually, you 500, will eventually find each other and engage in what's supposed to happen? And so when, when James talks about faith without works being dead, he's saying, if you don't, initiate an action to give evidence that you believe that God's kingdom is coming, then the people that are tied to you that you don't even know about will suffer unnecessarily. We have a lot of atheists that are atheists, not because God is real, but because the church hasn't stood up sufficiently. And I'm a part of that number of people in the church who has not Stood up sufficiently. And sometimes we don't stand, not because we don't care, because I don't believe a single person in this room doesn't stand because they don't care. I believe most of us don't stand because we don't know how to. We don't know when, we don't know where. Just by a show of hands, who in here can identify something that you know is contrary to God's kingdom? That's not the way God wants it to be. But you really are unsure what to do about it. Just by a show of hands. Who in here feels that way? That's where we are. And so the church is not struggling because Jesus would not allow for his bride to struggle. I'm tired of preachers acting like the church is all weak. We need to stop. Jesus didn't get a weak bride. The Holy Spirit is strong enough to make sure that we're going to get where we're supposed to be. Because he says not that you have to walk a straight line, but he says, I will make your path straight. So even as we stagger to the left and to the right and make mistakes, that don't mean go out and make mistakes now because Romans, Romans 6 let us know that we shouldn't just go and just sin because we want to sin, okay? All right, and so even when we make mistakes, he knows how to meander things so that we still wind up where we're supposed to be. Let me tell you a story as I conclude. When I think about this table and me desiring to eat at the table and to hear things, not realizing that the table was going to require for me to do something once I started to hear about it, because the Spirit would prick my heart as I heard these stories, and I would feel like doing something. The story of Jillian and Josh comes to mind. Jillian was a little girl, about 14 years old, and Josh was around 12. Josh was running, playing in the street. And what happened to him was very tragic. A driver was texting, and when he looked up from his phone, he slammed on his brakes, but he couldn't brake soon enough, and he hit Josh. Josh was thrown 15 feet. They thought they were going to lose him, but he wound up surviving. But he had lost complete mobility of his legs. And so Josh was extremely depressed, and for about four months, he wouldn't even go out. And one day, his next-door neighbor and best friend, Jillian, said, hey, we're going to have a barbecue. The 4th of July is coming up, so we're going to go out this Saturday, and we're going to cook out. And when the 4th happens on Sunday, we're probably going to be there, so we might actually pitch a tent and stay tonight. Would you like to come, Josh? Josh said no. Jillian said, Josh, I'm really scared. I don't want to be by myself because it's going to be a lot of adults, and I won't have anyone to talk to. Would you come just to talk to me? And so Josh said, okay, Jillian, I will. And so they went, and Josh was there. 
He got on a little swing, and although he couldn't lose his legs, he was able to hold on, and he could lean forward enough in order to help himself to be able to swing. And that sway became a nice little swing, and he would just go back and forth, back and forth. Jillian started acting a little bit younger than she actually was, and she was doing cartwheels. She was doing all of her cheerleader stunts. And as she kept on jumping and kept on flipping and kept on moving around, eventually she said, hey, Josh, watch this. I'm going to do a lux. And so she does this little cartwheel, and she does a flip, and she loses her balance, and she winds up too close to a ledge. And as she begins to fall, she notices that she's actually at a cliff. And she slides down and and she begins to grab and she's able to reach out and grab a root of a tree that is on the other side of the cliff. And she's saying, help, help. Josh wasn't really paying attention because he was so into his emotions about what he was limited. His limitations. And so Josh started screaming, help, help, somebody help. And Jillian said, Josh, I need you to help me. Josh, help me. And so Jillian would scream, she would scream, and Josh would scream, somebody help. And then Jillian started saying, Josh, I'm slipping, I'm slipping. Josh flings himself out of the swing. In military style, he begins to use what works on his body. Forearm after forearm, left after right, left after right. He begins to drag his body to her. And he's like, Jillian, keep screaming. I don't know where you are. And then he begins to see her fingers as she's holding on and she's barely there. And Josh gets close enough and he reaches down and he grabs her hand. And he's squeezing, he's holding to her. And he's screaming out, help. Jillian is screaming out, help. And so they dangle there for about one minute. And then all of a sudden, a kid gets close enough to hearing them play. And the kid goes and tells a parent, somebody is screaming, help. And then a few parents begin to run and they notice that's Josh and that's Jillian. And so someone throws himself and grabs Josh by the leg and begins to pull Josh up. Someone grabs Jillian by the wrist and begins to pull Jillian. And Josh is still screaming, Jillian, I have you. Jillian, I'm not going to let you go. All of a sudden, Josh's mom comes to him and she grabs his hand and says, Josh, Josh, it's okay. Josh, she's safe. Josh is still screaming, Jillian, Jillian, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. Eventually, Josh's dad grabs his hands and begins to pull his fingers out. And then they ask Josh, Josh, why wouldn't you let go? Josh said, because I was afraid. I was scared I didn't get there soon enough. But when I threw myself down and I was able to make it to my friend, all I can do was hold on to her. And I said, I love you so much. And even though I'm limited in what I can do to help you, I'm at least going to be in this with you because that's love. And so as Josh gave himself to his best friend, the two lived on. And their story is this. No matter how limited you feel, Someone needs you, and they're tied to you forever. If it's your kids, love them well. If it's your spouse, love him or her well. If it's the person at the housing complex, love them well. 
Fit your coworkers love them well because you might be the only hand that is holding on to them, keeping them from sliding out of safety until their demise. And if you can hold on long enough to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ are able to hear that cry and run to you to save you, then you will do what Jesus did for us because sometimes we're this close to giving up. But we know that God said, I have a purpose for you and we're just holding on to that dream. So hold on. And do what James said. Realize that faith without works is dead. So make sure that you do whatever work you can do and know that God is going to make it enough. Because if he said you're somebody and if he gave you a purpose, then nobody can take that away. God bless you.